Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. The lodging houses of Victorian London held no shortage of scandal and intrigue for the more imaginative Londoners in the 19th century. The maids and their masters, the comings and goings of a transient household, and the very concept of strangers living together under one roof in an age where such situations were not seen as natural. Still, even the most imaginative of passers-by could not have expected the stories that would soon come flooding out from one particular household when in 1879, the body of an elderly woman showed up in the coal cellar of 4 Euston Square, a previously well-to-do neighbourhood in Bloomsbury, London. Not merely unidentified, it was entirely unknown how on earth it had got there in the first place. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, welcome, season 2, episode 24 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben, and this is the penultimate episode of season 2. That's right, next week will be the last normal episode of 2018. My birthday comes, and that pretty much signals the start of Christmas holiday for me, so I'll be taking time off over Christmas and New Year just to do things like get season 3 in order and uh, to relax a little bit from writing, frankly. I will, however, be doing the bonus Christmas campfire episode, the same as last year. So if you want your stories to be included in that episode, get your creepy stories into me to narrate. Any sort of story that you think might suit, really, anything with the Dark Histories vibe goes. So, you know, if you've got any sort of paranormal, creepy, strange, anything like that kind of story, uh, email them to me, contact at darkhistories.com and I'll narrate them and put them in that bonus episode, and that'll come out sort of over the Christmas period at some point. This week, I just want to give a special thank you to all the patrons. I've been able to squirrel away enough money to not only upgrade the website, which has had a complete redesign and a complete hosting upgrade as well, but I was also able to have the sound remastered for the podcast by a professional sound engineer. So thank you so much for that. Hopefully, it will be sounding even better than ever. So, I also want to say a quick personal thank you to the new patrons, Jenny, Luke, Matthew, Hannah and Jennifer, as well as Emma for donating via coffee. So, thank you so much, guys. Um, Without any patrons, not only would I not be able to make the advancements like I made last week to the podcast, um, but, you know, I wouldn't, you know, it, it helps keep it all afloat at the level that, it's currently at which speaking of which we're steadily approaching a quarter of a million downloads which is insane so thank you also just to everyone for ever sharing the podcast leaving reviews spreading the word on social media and you know sharing the podcast with their friends it's amazing the podcast has far outreached what i ever expected so yeah just you know big loving thanks very much to everyone anyway let's crack on This week's episode is a corker and it's called The Euston Square Mystery. 
Victorian London was a city of severe duality. Alongside its developments in affluence, thriving middle class and ever-approving outward grandeur, it was a city mired with sewage and pollution that rolled eastwards down the river, choking the poor who lived chiefly amongst overcrowding, filth and squalor. Recent advancements in rail travel had seen citizens from across Britain, as well as wider continental Europe, flock inwards to the bright lights and glossy promises of large cities. Metropolitan London seemed to offer opportunity around every corner. As a hub of fashion, trade and technological and intellectual advancement, it was the brightest and glossiest of them all. For many, the dreams of an urban life kindled the imagination, whether it be an intellectual or an aspirational drive, the dreams of parading through the streets in fine clothing or debating on cutting-edge topics in the back rooms of dusty venues late into the night all could become a reality with just a short train ride. It was a huge influx, and in the hundred years from 1801 to 1901, the population of London increased from 1 million to 6 million. Naturally, for most, but sadly not all, their housing needs had to be catered for. Fortunately, a blossoming middle class oftentimes held property, but not always the ability to pay the upkeep and as such, common lodgings became a central feature of the period, a mutually beneficial arrangement between landlord and tenant. With the exception of house servants, it was a manner of living that's not so dissimilar to houses across British cities today. Boarding or lodging houses were the homes of thousands of transients, or of people looking to find a foothold in their new urban life. Typical lodgers were students, migrants and single men and women, strangers who had rolled together to live under one roof. A glance at the advertisement sheets of the Times will enable the stranger readily to determine in which quarter he will take up his abode. The West End is, of course, the dearest neighbourhood, though comfortable lodgings at moderate rates may be obtained in Pimlico. The Bloomsbury and Russell Square district is quiet, respectable, and within an easy distance of the principal places of amusement. The streets leading out to the Strand are a complete congeriere of lodging houses. As can be seen, this passage taken from A Handbook for Strangers, published in 1865, a tenant who may not be familiarised yet to the nuance of life amongst the London districts might find themselves running quite a gamble upon visiting one of the many lodging houses advertised in the paper daily. This was not made any easier when each and every landlord or landlady would fall over themselves to present their prospective tenants with an air of perfect respectability. This was demonstrated, sharply as always, in the weekly satirical magazine Punch, in an article concerning lodging houses published in 1842. When introduced to the lady, she declares that everything is clean and comfortable, especially the window curtains, whose colour cannot be seen for the dust, and the bedroom which was fumigated by the last lodger with tobacco smoke. On inquired the terms, they are said to be dirt cheap, which, judging from the state of the tables and carpet, they ought to be. Fifteen shillings a week and find your own bed and table linen, and the bargain is closed. At the end of the first week, you discover how exceedingly dear cheap lodgings prove to be, for you are charged five shillings a week for blacking and twelve and sixpence for coals. It also appears that you have had friends to supper every evening, or else what could have become of nine bottles of stout? Nevertheless, they were homes to many, and many made the best of their living situations, congregating in shared living quarters for the evening, 
drinking wine with the lord or lady of the house, and possibly even conversing with the other tenants. To outsiders, lodging houses were keenly observed with an eye of some suspicion. It was still, after all, an age where such living conditions prompted the most imaginative to conjure up all manner of scandal going on, tucked behind a foot of brick wall and the tight lips of servants. So it was in the Georgian Terrace of Euston Square in the 1870s. Number 4 Euston Square was an outwardly genteel lodging house owned by the Bastondorfs in the aforementioned quiet and respectable Bloomsbury area of London. By late 1879, however, this facade was set to crumble, bringing the owners and the area into disrepute via a scandal that all involved would never quite recover from. Severin Bastendorf was born in the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg in 1845. The records of his family's births are patchy at best, but he was one of at least 14 children, and possibly 16. He had red hair and sported a vividly characteristic full beard. He moved to Paris in 1860, but as the Franco-Prussian War ignited in 1870, he scooted across the ocean to Britain and settled in London. Whilst he spent his time in Paris, he had learned the art of fine cabinet making, utilising bamboo in the fashionable European style of chinoiserie, and now in London, he looked to further his business in the same vein. He took a workshop and expanded quickly, eventually employing ten workmen under his watch, three of which were his brothers, Joseph, Peter and Anton. Not long after his arrival in London, but with business booming, he was able to position himself as a rather illegible bachelor and he soon found a suitable wife. He married Mary Pierce, a native Londoner in 1872 and the pair were able to purchase number 4 Euston Square in 1876. The house was a large three-storey in a quiet terrace set amongst a respectable yet thriving area of northwest London, a mere stone's throw to the east of University College London. Previous residents of the street had been as titled as sirs, reverends and archdeacons. In 1879, there was a large population of around 30,000 German immigrants in London and many were situated around Bloomsbury. Despite naturalising as a British citizen in 1878, Severin was an active member amongst this German community and he attended the local Bavarian church. In 1872, Severin and Mary had their first child, a daughter named Christine, followed by their first son, Peter, in 1875. Mary gave birth to two more children, Severin Jr. and Rosa, in 1877 and 1888, respectively. The family lived moderately but comfortably, employing a young maid named Sarah Carpenter and renting the remaining rooms in their house to various lodgers. Mary was the lady of the household, whilst Severin occupied himself with his furniture business in his workshop to the rear of the house. The ground floor of the house opened up to a large drawing room with a piano, fireplace and soft furnishings. The room played the role as a communal social area for those lodgers that wished and were invited downstairs by Mary Bastendorf. On the first floor, a large front bedroom sat alongside a communal bathroom. The French window of the first floor bedroom opened out onto a small roofed balcony that overlooked the street below. On the second floor were two more bedrooms, the larger in the front of the house and the smaller in the rear, and on the third floor were three smaller bedrooms, 
the front once again the largest, which was occupied by Mary and Severin, whilst the two rear bedrooms were of around equal size, each half of the larger, and played host to the Bastendorf children. In May of 1879, the first floor bedroom was vacant. The Bastendorfs were expecting a new lodger to arrive around the 9th of May, which would have been some relief as the room commanded the highest rent in the house. On top of the three floors above ground, there was also a basement floor that consisted of two coal cellars in the very front of the house. As the name suggests, these were used to store coal and fuel for the household and were fitted with a chute that ran to the street above, capped by a manhole that allowed a collier to drop coal directly from a delivery cart into the storage rooms. Number four used both cellars to store coal for the residents as well as timber and bamboo for the furniture business. The rear of the basement held the kitchens, washrooms and narrow corridors that culminated in the rear yard, opening out onto a muse which housed Severin's workshop. In general, the Bastendorf household appeared like any other lodging house, a quietly chaotic churn constrained within the confines of everyday domesticity. On the morning of the 9th of May, however, as the collier arrived to deliver the house's allocation of fuel, things were about to take a sharp decline. The morning of May 9th was grey and wet. As the rain fell in the street above, 15-year-old William Stroman, the house's local errand boy, was tasked with digging out coal from the cellar to clean it out and prepare it for the use of the expected new lodger. As he dug, however, he came across a gruesome find. Quite aside from filthy coal, he found what appeared to him to be a human foot. Startled, he raced to the workshop to the rear of the house to get assistance. There he met with Joseph Bastendorf, who in no uncertain terms told the boy that he was talking nonsense and called over Albert Bastendorf to accompany the distressed young boy back to the cellar to see what he was so concerned about. When they reached the cellar, however, Albert quickly confirmed that the boy had uncovered a human foot. The pair went back to Joseph, who resigned to go and see joined them as all three re-entered the soot-ridden room. As they dug through the pile of coal, the full picture of the macabre find became clear. There in the cellar, half buried amongst a pile of coal, lay a badly decomposed body of a human. William Stroman was sent out to find a police officer and Joseph went upstairs to find Mary Bastendorf to try and explain, somehow, the most unusual and disturbing find. Upon relaying the news and confirming that he had sent for the police, he collected a bag of quicklime to scatter around the cellar through fear of the smell of the decomposing remains becoming overpowering. He tossed the powder around, just as George Fulcher, the collier, arrived, crouching down into the room to see what the hold-up was. He had been waiting in the street above to deliver coal to the house and had more deliveries to make that morning. He wasn't appreciating the setback. As he entered the room, however, and took stock of the situation, the deliveries fell from his mind. Fulcher ran back up the stairs to go and find help from the local police. It was 9.30am when he ran into Police Constable Thomas Holman in nearby Drummond Street, about a half mile from Euston Square. The pair returned to the scene shortly before William Stroman returned with Constable Isaac Dowling in tow. The two policemen conferred for a brief period and then PC Dowling went to fetch Dr. Henry Davis, who lived three doors down at number one Euston Square. Meanwhile, amongst all of the commotion, Mary Bastendorf was alerted to the gravity of the situation, 
and she went upstairs to wake up her husband with the grim news. Dr. Henry Davis arrived in quick fashion and began observing the body. He found that though it had been covered in an oilcloth, it had decomposed considerably, suggesting it had been in the cellar for some time, possibly even several years. It had one foot missing and a cord had been wrapped around the neck at least twice. Though decay had destroyed much of the clothing, it was clear from the amount of lace that the body was that of a woman, but little else could be determined. Davis ordered the body to be collected and removed to St Pancras Hospital for a full inspection. By now, however, word had already been sent to Scotland Yard, and nothing further could be done until the scene had been visited and scrutinised by a detective. Once Detective Inspector Charles Hagen arrived, further investigation on the scene uncovered an ornamental brooch and a large silk shawl wrapped around the body. Satisfied that they had noted all they could, the body was moved out of the house. Once in the morgue, the doctor could take out a full examination of the body, though there was little left, such was the state of decomposition. The clothing had almost entirely disintegrated, mingled now with the coal dust in the cellar of 4 Euston Square. Still, the doctor was able to ascertain that the woman had been dressed in an elaborate black lace and silk dress, adorned with a fancy silk cloak. There were no marks on the head to speak of, and no signs of violence on the body itself aside from the cord tied around the neck, which appeared to be further up below the jaw, a trait found more often in hanging victim than a murder victim, as the weight of the body pulled the rope tight around the top of the neck. Though there was little skin to speak of, there were small patches of bright auburn hair, whilst there remained only a few original teeth in both the upper and lower jaw. From the state of the teeth, the doctor estimated the woman to have been around 55 to 60 years old upon her death. She was around five foot tall, though she had a distinctive curve in her spine, and both her arms and legs had become detached, though this was chalked up to decay rather than violence. He concluded that whoever the mystery body was, she had been dead at least a year, and possibly up to three. The medical examination answered very little, but it opened up a slew of questions. Who she was and how she had died were immediate mysteries, but rather more troubling was the question of how on earth the body of a woman had lain in the cellar of a busy household in the centre of London for a minimum of 12 months entirely undiscovered. As the story hit the press the next day with the headline Euston Square Mystery, onlookers began to gather outside the house. The story had invoked such an interest in fact that two policemen had to be employed simply to keep control of the mob that extended in queues down the street. Amongst this chaos, it failed to Inspector Hagen to try and get to the bottom of what the papers had dubbed a sensational mystery. Inspector Charles Hagen was a German-born rising star of the recently formed Criminal Investigations Department in Scotland Yard. Prior to his police service, he had worked as a bodyguard to the Prince of Wales, in 1879, with his background in languages and connections within the German community of London, he was nailed on as the lead investigator for the case in 4 Euston Square. Hagen's first steps were to inspect the house itself and question the Bastendorf family. He scoured the rooms from top to bottom, but found little of any interest that might help him to identify the body in the cellar, nor why it had turned up there. The residents appeared to have no clues as to the identification of the body, 
and merely banded about theories that there may have been a chance it was a drunk who had fallen into the cellar from the street before they had arrived, though this seemed unlikely, as there were bars at street level that made access to the front of the house all but impossible, whilst entry from the rear would have involved crossing the workshop and the mews, which was gated and locked at all times. He did, however, come across one unusual event when he reached the attic and upon attempting to open the hatch, found it bolted shut. He inquired with Severin Bastendorf, who told him that it was always left unlocked, and when eventually forced, he came across a wicker basket tray containing small items, including an eyeglass. While seemingly innocuous, he nevertheless sent it to the station for further inspection. The previous owner of the house, a Mr Milnes, was contacted and questioned, though this once again led nowhere. Milnes was a sculptor, and he had been in the habit of entertaining life models from time to time. There was some speculation that the lady had been one such model, though her age did shed some shade on this train of thought. As it turned out, Milnes had now moved to the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire, some 130 miles west of London, on the England-Wales border. After initial questioning, suspicion quickly fell away and he was written out of the picture. The first new piece of information came when, upon reading the press report on the mystery in their home in Devon, William and Susan Dobbs contacted police to inquire about their daughter Hannah, who they had not seen or heard from in six months, and who they knew had been in the service of, and had deeper connections with, the Bastendorfs. Hannah Dobbs was the third daughter of William and Susan Dobbs, born in Barnstaple, Devon, in 1855. Her family had moved to a farm on the outskirts of the town shortly after her birth. After school, she worked on the farm as a milkmaid for a short period, before setting her sights on more genteel work. At the age of 16, she boarded a train and headed for the nearby town of Biddeford, finding work there as a dairymaid and quickly meeting a young man who she became involved with. And engaged to. It was in this position, however, that she showed the first signs of a problem that she would carry throughout her career whilst working in the service industry. Keen on a hat that she had seen in a shop window, she placed a deposit to purchase it in the form of a cheque for £3. The problem was, however, that the cheque did not belong to her, rather it belonged to a member of her household. She was swiftly relieved of her position when it came to light, and with her engagement cancelled, forced to return to the family farm. In 1873, aged 18, she once again grew tired of the slow pace of life in North Devon, and yearned for something more. This time, she decided to travel further afield, and boarded a train to London. Unfamiliar with the city as she was, she took lodgings in a less than stellar district of South London, a far cry from the glamour she had hoped for, Unable to find any working positions as a housemaid within London, she took a position in the Surrey town of Redhill, 20 miles south of the city. She worked there for a full 15 months before she was once again sacked, this time for stealing a piece of silk and £13, a sum equivalent to about a year's wage for a lady in her position. Now for the second time she was forced to return to Devon, though once again this would be a short-lived trip. With renewed vigour and a better sense of London life, she boarded a train once more for the bright lights, and she quickly landed a position as cook in Torrington Square. 
Our new workplace was perched on the very edge of University College London and was in an area that was a step up from her first foray into the city. It was also a short five minute walk from Euston Square and was to be where she met Severin Bustendorf and the story of Hannah Dobbs takes quite an unusual turn. In November of 1878, Hannah Dobbs, now fully established in London, visited her home in Devon. She was not alone, however. She had brought along her husband, a young German man named Mr. Bastendorf. During the trip, she told her parents that she would soon be visiting Germany, so after she left, her parents were not particularly concerned after not hearing news from their daughter in the six months past. Now they read the story in the paper, however, new worries struck them. They contacted the local police, who in turn contacted the Metropolitan Police in London. The reply came back swiftly and was a further shock to the Dobbs family. Their daughter, Hannah, was not in Germany at all, but safely living in London. Extremely safely, as a matter of fact, as she was serving time in prison for petty theft. If this was strange news for the Dobbs, they had to strap themselves in. It was simply the beginning of an ordeal that would drag their daughter into the limelight of the national papers soon enough. The inquest for the body found in Euston Square began on May 16th, 1879. Throughout, several members of the Bastendorf household would stand to give evidence and a few rather unusual stories would creep out of the woodwork. Severin Bastendorf was the first to begin the peculiar tales of life behind the walls of 4 Euston Square. He told the inquiry that over the previous three years, about 20 or so lodgers had come and gone and he painted a picture of a churning, transient household that he was quick to confirm that they were all a genteel lot of people. After all, the house had a quickly deteriorating reputation to uphold. He told of how the cellar had never been locked and had rarely, if ever, been cleared out before. It was only being cleared out on the fateful morning of the 9th to make room for the incoming lodger, Mr Brooks, who had requested the use of the cellar for his fuel. After this, he relayed a story to the court that most would likely to have found relatively shocking at best. I went into the cellar about Christmas and I picked up a bone, which I thought was a sheep's bone, and it had some flesh on it. I took it into the kitchen and showed it to my wife, saying, What a wasteful girl that servant must be, throwing away a half leg of mutton, for that is what I took it for. I went and threw the particular bone back again into the cellar. I am not a judge of human bones. Further to this macabre tale, Sarah Carpenter, the house's current maidservant, then stood and told of a similar story, that only two weeks prior to the body being found, she had come across a bone that she had taken to show Mrs. Bastendorf. It was her impression that the bone was that of a human foot. Mrs. Bastendorf was quick to discard this line of thought, telling her not to be so silly and it must have come from a wild boar that the family had recently eaten. Miss Carpenter, with little else to do, returned to the cellar and simply tossed it back inside. A few days later, she found another bone, about the size of her finger. Rather than show the lady of the house this time, however, she tossed it in with the rest of the house garbage. With these bizarre stories told, then came the turn of the doctor, Mr Davis, who had inspected the body. He shed absolutely no light upon the case whatsoever, simply stating with a fantastic level of non-committal, the body, 
might have been there three years, or more than three years, or it might have been but one year. The confusion around the date of death was further placed into the mire, when at the final inspection carried out by Dr Davis, this time joined by a police surgeon named Dr Jackins, Davis reiterated that he believed the body to have been placed in the cellar three to four years prior, though Jenkins was not so sure and suggested it was rather more recent. In conclusion of the report, the doctors theorised that it may very well have been dumped in the cellar during the six months between ownership of the house by Mr Milnes and the Bastendorfs where it lay vacant. With the body still throwing up no new leads, Hagen once again took to questioning Severin Bastendorf. He thought it fit to bring up the question of Hannah Dobbs, the maid from Devon, and it so transpired that she had in fact worked for the Bastendorf house up until the 17th of September in 1878, though she had since left their service. He was, however, aware that she was now in prison for theft. The next breakthrough came via a quite ingenious piece of lateral thinking on behalf of Inspector Hagen. Hagen theorised that the lady, who had been dressed in fine silks and elaborate lace, would not have been the type to have not looked after herself. As she had so many missing teeth, he supposed that it was likely that she would have had dentures made and would have kept appointments for dentistry. Message was sent and inquiries were made to the dentist offices throughout the local districts of St Pancras, Bloomsbury, Somerstown and Kentish Town, and remarkably, after just a few days, a dentist working nearby to Euston Square contacted the police concerning a patient he had seen two years prior. It turned out that this patient had come to see him to inquire about getting a set of dentures made, and the dentist had created a cast of the lady's mouth. After this initial work, however, she had never returned. Hagen took the cast and tested its fit alongside the drawer of the body found in Euston Square, and like pieces of a jigsaw, it fit perfectly. Hagen also began scouring the local pawn shops for items which may have had a connection to the body, results of which would pay dividends later down the line. For now, however, he had to meet a man named Edward Hacker. Edward had been to see the police on a hunch that the body may have been that of his estranged sister. Despite living in close proximity to one another, the two had rarely seen each other socially and he had not heard from her in over two years. He went with police to view the body and positively identified both the clothing and the patches of hair to match those of his sister, one Matilda Hacker. He told the police of a gold watch that she would always carry and sure enough, the watch was found in a pawn shop in nearby St Pancras. Inspector Hagen took the watch along with the patches of hair to Edward and Matilda's hometown of Canterbury where a local police officer confirmed them to belong to Matilda. A strange lady that he had, it turned out, had several run-ins with in the past. Matilda Hacker was born in 1811 in Canterbury. She was the daughter of John Hacker, a builder and stone engraver, and his wife, Mary. John Hacker had done well for himself locally, established in the local community as a talented stonemason. He was an active member of the local church, and in part funded the erection of a parish clock, with a not insubstantial sum of £50. Through his wealth, he had built a small property empire within Canterbury, and in 1850, he moved into a large house in Wincheap, naming it Wincheap House. Along with her brother Edward, Matilda had a younger sister, three years her junior, named Amelia. 
Amelia and Matilda were well known throughout the area. Neither had married, instead they held the company of one another, and it was often commented that the pair were inseparable. They were daily seen parading through the streets together, wearing identical clothing, all of which were brightly coloured and extravagant, or, to those with less kind words, clothing of extraordinary pattern and grotesque style. The locals simply called them the Canterbury Bells or the Windcheap Dolls. After their father's death, the property fell to the children and they managed the rents, tenants and upkeep themselves, living comfortably from the profits. Whilst they were regarded as eccentrics, it's not such a stretch to imagine a level of envy towards the sisters, who appeared to live carefree of society's chains, dressing in the clothes of 16-year-old women at the tender age of 60. Troubles came for Matilda after the death of her beloved sister in 1871. She became more and more reclusive and began refusing to pay property rates despite clearly having the means to do so. So too did she begin to neglect her role as landlady and disgruntled tenants were forced to seek help from her brother who had recently moved to Camden in London to work as an artist. Life appeared to get on top of Matilda who by now had already spent a short stint in Westgate Prison for refusing to pay her debts. Rather than learn her lesson, she instead devised new ways to avoid her charges by moving around various rented properties in Canterbury, Brighton and London under false names in an effort to avoid detection from the authorities. She eventually moved to London for good in 1875 under the name Miss Bell and though she had no previous references to rent, she found that her money and educated background meant she could often pass into reasonable lodgings without much suspicion. Despite her efforts, police did manage to catch up with her in London and she eventually cleared her debts by selling jewellery. In 1876, she moved to Chelsea and then on to Mornington Crescent under the name Miss Sycamore where she began reading tarot from a popular fortune-telling book known as The Book of Dreams. In 1877, she finally moved to 4 Euston Square under the name of Miss Uish. After years of transience and constant upheaval, this move was to be her fateful last. With a positive ID finally on the body, the papers wasted no time in printing the name of Matilda Hacker, including details of her eccentricities. Few were particularly kind in their descriptions of the old lady. For the last 15 years, Miss Hacker and her sister, who were natives of Canterbury, had been well-known objects of ridicule. Had been well-known objects of ridicule and amusement. On the death of their father, the two sisters lived together in a house in the suburbs of the city. They kept no servant, and though comfortably off, their habits were of the most penurious description. Notwithstanding their age, they insisted upon dressing in the style of girls of 18 and presented such a ridiculous appearance that they became the laughing stock of the street boys. On her life in 4 Euston Square, the descriptions continue in a similar vein. She was very quiet and very friendly with the Bastendorfs and gave them little trouble and lived very economically. Her dress, however, was of the most fashionable kind and even in the house she wore a bright sash around the waist. On Saturdays, she was in the habit of walking to Rotten Row. Although 66 years of age, she was active and invariably in the best of spirits. Her hair is described as being of a most luxuriant kind, 
and when curled in the morning, it resembled more the tresses of a girl of 16 than a lady of 66. Meanwhile, the investigation continued full steam ahead. Inspector Hagen organised a line-up into the Tothill Fields prison that included the Bastendorf's former maid, Hannah Dobbs, and the pawnbroker who had bought the gold watch belonging to Mrs Hacker was taken to see if he could identify the seller. Without any hesitation, he fingered Dobbs, whom he was well aware of. In fact, as the papers pointed out, it was merely a matter of formality to visit her at all, as he remembered her perfectly well and indeed knew that the watch and chain had been pawned with him by her. Curiously, she had pawned the watch under the pseudonym Rosina Bastendorf, and what's more, the watch was not the only item of Matilda's that she had pawned under that name. She had also pawned several items of clothing. Further to this, upon her leaving the service of the Bastendorf house, several items of clothing and an eyeglass were left behind by her, which appeared to have belonged to Matilda. They were passed around until eventually, items such as the eyeglass were placed in the wicker tray that ended up in storage in the attic of 4 Euston Square. The evidence appeared to begin to stack heavily against Hannah Dobbs. In a report in the papers, they also mentioned a case of a cash box apparently owned by Matilda. The other discovery is a cash box, alleged to have been one in which Miss Hacker kept her money and valuables. Mr Bastendorf being asked about this, stated that one day, while Hannah Dobbs was in his service, he found his children playing with a cash box, of which the lid had been wrenched open. Mr Bastendorf asked where this had come from, and Hannah said it was hers, and having lost the key, she had had to break it open, and it was now useless. Mr Bastendorf took it from the children to whom Hannah had given it as a plaything, and put his own private documents in it, and put it in his wine cellar. After extensive questioning, to which she appeared to have cooperated with Inspector Hagen entirely, and a visit to the morgue to examine the body, Hannah Dobbs went from petty thief to prime suspect in a murder investigation at remarkable pace. Indeed, the press were already printing theories as to how and when she had carried out the murder. A pre-trial was set in Bow Street Court and she found herself formally charged with willful murder. Her only response was to say, No, not me. As details of Hannah Dobbs' time at the Bastendorf's began to leak out into the press, so too did the investigation begin to nail down their suspicions as to timing of the murder and motive. Hannah Dobbs had worked as a maid for the Bastendorf household up until September of 1878, eight months before the body was uncovered in the cellar. More curiously, however, it transpired that Matilda Hacker had lodged in the house only until October of 1877. This meant that if Hannah Dobbs was the killer, she had continued to work for the Bastendorf house for almost a full year after the murder had taken place. All the while, the body of her victim would have been hidden in the coal cellar just a few metres beneath her feet. Though the precise date was still unknown of her death, it was thought to have been between the 10th and 15th of October, as dated letters sent from Matilda proved that she was alive on the 10th. However, she apparently left the house in something of a rush on the 15th, never to be heard from again. The exact date of her murder was proving so difficult to establish, as no one in the Bastendorf home could confidently explain her departure, nor prove to have been a witness to it. As it happens, throughout questioning, 
Mrs. Bassendorf appeared to distance herself almost entirely from the day-to-day runnings of the house, pushing almost all the responsibilities onto the servant. This, of course, had the knock-on effect of two, distancing herself from any suspicion of knowledge of murder. Although her mistress was unable to fix the exact date either of her departure, it was certain that Mrs. Ewish or Hacker was lodging there at the time, because the maid brought downstairs to her mistress a £5 note in payment of the rent due from the lady, who paid 12 shillings per week for her room. The bill, he believed, amounted to £1.16 shillings, and Mrs. Bastendorf received the account, which had been sent up to her previously, and gave the maid the change to deliver to Miss Uish, after deducting a sum of two shillings, which was charged for a lamp glass alleged to have been broken by the lodger. It was only from a statement made to her at the time by the maid that Mrs. Bastendorf became aware of the fact that the deceased lady contemplated leaving her apartments, and it was not till some time after the latter were vacated that Mrs. Bastendorf went upstairs to see the room. She then noticed the broken lamp glass and she observed a large stain upon the carpet which had the appearance of something having been washed out. She remembered saying to the maid on that occasion that if she had known of this before Miss Uish left the house, she would certainly have charged her for the damage done to the carpet. She did not remember the maid making any reply to this remark. It would appear that Mrs. Bastendorf did not see the lady when she left the house and never saw or heard of her afterwards. She never suspected that anything wrong had happened to her. So it appears that Matilda Hacker left the Bastendorf house on the 15th of October, entirely unseen by anyone except Hannah Dobbs, who settled her rent bill personally. The stain on the carpet was inspected by the police and a section cut away and sent for testing. It was also heard that on Sunday the 14th of October, Mr. Bastendorf was out of the house for the weekend attending a bird shoot in Kent with a friend named Mr. Whiffling. His wife, Mrs. Bastendorf, was out visiting her mother who lived nearby. This gave the police room to place the time that the killing could take place, as on that Sunday, the only people at home in the Bastendorf household would have been Hannah and Matilda. She then presumably concocted the story of her swift departure the following day to cover for the crime. At the end of the hearing, a full trial against Hannah Dobbs was put into motion. All of this had happened in such a flurry that the inquest itself to determine the cause of death had yet to have concluded. At the final stage of the hearing, yet more revelations were to unfold. Rather excitingly for the public, they involved a good deal of scandal. The court heard that whilst in employment with the Bastendorfs, Hannah Dobbs had in fact been seeing Sverin Bastendorf's brother, Peter, who worked with him in the workshop to the rear of the house, and that she had in fact fallen pregnant, though she had eventually lost the baby due to illness. Finally, the conclusion of the cause of death came from Dr Pepper, who told the court that the body had been dead between one and two years, and that no skull damage existed, nor signs of violence. There had been no traces of mineral poison, and though they had not checked for it, presumably there were no traces of organic poison. They also concluded that the rope tied around the neck of the body was conducive to that of a hanging, suicide or strangulation. Wrapping up the hearing, the court heard the verdict. That the deceased, Matilda Hacker, was found lying dead in a coal cellar at number 4 Euston Square, and we further say that some person, or persons unknown, did felonously, and with malice and a forethought, 
kill and murder the said Matilda Hacker against the peace of our Sovereign Lady the Queen, her crown and dignity. The trial against Hannah Dobbs opened in June of 1879 to a packed courthouse in the new court at the Old Bailey. The story was still running good copy in the press and people were keen to see the outcome for themselves. In the prosecution's opening statement, a rather curious line of attack was outlined, foreshadowing what was to be presented to the court in the coming days. Many cases of murder depend upon circumstantial evidence, but such evidence might happen to be stronger and even more trustworthy than direct evidence. This line was apparently delivered with a straight face. The jury heard of how the stain on the carpet that Hannah Dobbs had told Mrs. Bastendorf had come from a broken lamp had now been tested and was in fact blood. This was perhaps the strongest forensic evidence delivered as the doctors involved then told the court that with strangulation one might expect a flow of blood to have erupted from the nose, eyes or mouth but no evidence of this had been found on the body. Both Dr Davis, the original doctor on the scene and Dr Pepper, the pathologist backed this point up and when asked if there was any sign or trace of evidence that might suggest an unnatural death, they confirmed that there was not. Even the rope they suggested was more likely to have been from a hanging or from the body being tied round the neck after death and dragged to the cellar. Mrs Bastendorf was questioned extensively on the stand, though her answers were vague and not particularly helpful in the tracking of dates or details. However, it was confirmed by her that on the Sunday, the 14th of October, that the house had been presumed empty, Hannah Dobbs had in fact been placed in the position to look after the Bastendorf children. This raised obvious questions as to when or how she may have found the time to murder an old lady with several children in tow. The second day saw the turn of the defence. Though Hannah Dobbs was not permitted to speak for herself at any point, as the laws of the time did not allow for suspects of murder to speak in their own defence. Mrs Bastendorf confirmed that the stain on the carpet was not there before Matilda Hacker's stay, but was thereafter, though at what point she was not sure. She was also equally vague on the status of the children, simply saying that Hannah Dobbs was in the habit of caring for the children, though whether or not she could be sure she was caring for them on the 14th, she could not say eventually suggesting that they were, and it was even possible that Hannah Dobbs had taken them out for the day to Hampstead Heath. This led to an outburst from the judge, who exclaimed to the court, I never saw such a witness. We cannot get answers to questions which ought to be answered. So far, the trial had not uncovered anything particularly new to satiate the public's veracity for scandal. This, however, was all about to change when Mr. Bastendorf was called to the stand and asked a simple question. Had he been keeping company with the accused? He denied it outright, though the defence continued that he knew of a local pub owner who would tell otherwise. He then asked if Mr. Bastendorf knew of the Prince's Hotel on Argyle Street and if he had ever been there with Hannah Dobbs. Again, Mr. Bastendorf denied it sternly. Continuing to push the line of questioning, he then asked if Peter Bastendorf, Severin's brother, had voiced concern about the closeness of the relationship between Mr. Bastendorf and his maid. Had he ever given her gifts? Finally, Severin Bastendorf conceded that he had once given her a cabinet that he had made. 
The defence asked if he had ever given her a gold watch and chain and told her to tell people that it was bequeathed to her from a dead uncle in order to conceal it as a gift from him. Severin denied it. It would have been an uncomfortable series of questions and raised a considerable amount more, both on the part of the jury and the Bastendorf household. Still the defence pushed. Had Mr Bastendorf ever borrowed money from Hannah Dobbs? Severin admitted that once, in order to take delivery of a cask of imported French wine, he had asked Hannah to pay as he had not the time to visit a bank, though he ensured the court that he paid the money back within days. Finally, he was permitted to stand down, and the remainder of the day was chiefly spent hearing witnesses of Severin Bastendorf's shooting friends who testified to him being at a shoot on Sunday the 14th of October, but the damage was likely done. When his brother Peter was called to the stand and asked whether or not he had concern for Severin and Hannah's relationship, which he denied, the imaginations of the public and the jury were already alight. This was not helped when Peter then contradicted himself by stating, I thought to myself that there was something between Hannah Dobbs and my brother, and I complained of it both. After hearing rumours of a relationship between Hannah, whom he was supposed to be seeing romantically, and his brother, during his summary, the defence put to the jury a heavy burden, twice commenting that their decision bore the responsibility of a woman likely to seek capital punishment if they were to find her guilty. He then questioned how, if she had murdered Matilda Hacker, had she managed to do so with the Bastonorf children around all day. Sharply, he pointed out that the only evidence against her with any strength was that of the gold watch and that there was now evidence which appeared to show that that had been given to her by Severin Bastendorf himself. What evidence there was, was stronger against the Bastendorfs. The trial over, the jury stepped out to make their deliberations, and within 25 minutes they returned to deliver their verdict. On the evening of July 6th, 1879, Hannah Dobbs was found not guilty of willful murder against Matilda Hacker. The trial was over, but with it, only more questions had been asked, and none answered. Hannah Dobbs had watched on the entire time she was on trial with a stoicism that bordered on indifference. Now, however, she was free to defend herself, and she was not best pleased. Though she had been acquitted of the charges of murder, Hannah Dobbs still had to serve her time for petty theft. When she was released a few weeks later, she began working on her own form of revenge. George Perkis, a journalist who ran the often sensationalist weekly tabloid The Illustrated Police News, was keen to tell Hannah Dobbs' side of the story, and Dobbs was all too happy to oblige. In October of 1879, Perkis published a 16-page pamphlet that detailed Hannah Dobbs' side of the story, entitled The Euston Square Mystery, an extraordinary statement made by Hannah Dobbs, her life and early career, History of Miss Hacker whilst in Euston Square, Harrowing Details, Story of the Murder. As soon as he was made aware of the publication, Mr. Bassendorf attempted to carry out an injunction against Perkis to stop its publication. However, a judge threw out the case, ordering Bassendorf to pay the costs of the hearing. If the line of questioning during the trial concerning his relationship with Hannah Dobbs had been tough, this was nothing compared to the bombs that were about to be dropped. The leaflet, 
detailed a household that reveled in scandal and salaciousness that Perkis was a master of creating. It told of how Hannah had met Sverin Bastendorf whilst cleaning windows in her position at Torrington Square and of how he had taken a liking to her immediately. The pair had arranged to meet that same night after the lady of the house had fallen asleep, though Hannah missed her first appointment. The next night, however, they did meet at 11.30pm and then after, she met him several more times. Eventually, Severin removed her position into his own household, even offering to make up the £1 difference in wages. I learned that his wife would soon be in want of a servant, and that the wages were £11 a year, and that the difference might be made up in another way to me. During her time at the Bastendorf's, she began stealing small items and pawning them around the local pawnbrokers. Though she defended her actions by stating that she only did so to make up for the fact that she was not receiving pay for the first four months of her service there. Throughout the entire time that she worked in the residence, Severin would visit her in her room, which she shared with his own children, after his wife was asleep, to sleep with Hannah. This eventually led Hannah falling pregnant with Severin's child. He agreed to cover her financially, but told her that in order to cover their affair, she must also begin seeing his younger brother Peter and claim that the baby was his. As the pregnancy progressed, they were planned for her to go home and have the baby and that she should write home first to tell her parents that she was married to Peter Bastendorf. She then carried on the affair with Severin behind both the backs of Mrs Bastendorf and Peter, even to the point after she had left Euston Square in what she told both Peter and Mrs Bastendorf was a trip for home. In reality, she told of how she stayed in various places paid for by Severin and of how she would sneak into Four Euston Square at night to sleep with him. This might have been scandal enough as it were, but Hannah was just getting started on the depravity of the Bastendorf household. She went on to tell of a previous lodger named Mr Finley, who had owned a revolver. Severin and Mr Findlay had become close during his time at the Bastendorf's. However, one day, he simply up and vanished. Shortly after, Severin gave her a watch and chain that were too big, and that she supposed had belonged to Finley. What has become of Mr Finley? That was the question which was asked at the trial, but never answered. Then came the story of Matilda Hacker. She told of how she had received a £5 note for rent from Matilda, and that she had taken it from a large sum of money she had hidden in her petticoat. When she took the note downstairs to get change, she had told Severin Bastendorf of seeing the old lady's money. On the Sunday of the supposed murder, she explained how she had visited Hampstead Heath all day with the Bastendorf children, even getting them photographed, a photograph which she said still existed. She then found, upon her arrival home, that Matilda had gone away suddenly by Severin, that she had gone to the countryside fancying a change. A few days later, Severin gave Hannah Matilda's watch and chain, which was broken, along with the money to repair it in exchange for the oversized man's watch that he had given her previously. She must, he said, tell anyone else that she had received it from her dead uncle in a will. The implications that Hannah made in the pamphlet were crystal clear, and they went on. One day, whilst working at the Bastendorf's, she had gone into the cellar to fetch some wood, there she came across a small homeless boy sheltering in the corner. 
she went upstairs to tell the family and when they chased him out, an unnamed member of the group hit him with a poker. The boy later died in the workshop. I don't think he could have been more than 10 years old. All of his clothes were gathered together and burned at the workshop fire. She later uncovered the body of Matilda Hacker in the same workshop, bundled in an oilcloth. They said if I spoke of it, I should be implicated too, as I had pawned the old lady's things. I became a partner in the dreadful deceit. Other feelings weighed with me. I had been a bad woman, but I had some of a woman's feelings. Scores of times I thought I would go and drown myself, and now I am possessed with the same feeling. I stayed on in the house, enduring the torments of hell. The coal cellar, she said, which had previously been unused, was now full of coal. Amongst it, she had found the partial remains of the young boy. She was told that the remainder had been fed to one of the lodger's pet dogs. This is a new level of depravity that Hannah was bringing to the table, as well as a further two suggestions of murder. Already enough, she gave one last story of how Joseph Bastendorf, one of the workshop workers, had been given a puppy, and after several weeks of caring for it, the brothers grew tired of it, so they shot at it in the garden whilst it was tied up. They then took it into the workshop, skinned it alive and ate it. This was, perhaps, the final nail in the coffin for the Bastendorfs. Violence against humans in Victorian London could be tolerated to a certain degree, but violence against animals was far beyond the pale for most. In August of 1878, Hannah Dobbs returned home to Devon for two weeks, and upon her return to Euston Square, she found herself being accused of theft by Mrs. Bastendorf. She was relieved of her position after serving a month's notice. Whilst this left her out of work, she still found herself under the control of Sverin Bastendorf, who was continuing on with the affair, paying for her rent while she looked for a new position. In an attempt to escape her nightmare, she told of how she stole and pawned items to try and rid her reliance on Sverin, so she could finally rid her life of his influence. I was apprehended by police for the theft that I had committed. I told them the truth, pleaded guilty, and was sentenced to eight months imprisonment, which I richly deserved. Throughout it all, she maintained that fear of repercussions stopped her from telling all concerning the matters that she had witnessed in the Bastendorf household. When she was questioned by Inspector Hagen concerning Matilda Hacker, she cooperated only so far as she answered what she was asked, and that she had not realised she was a suspect, nor that she would be standing trial for her murder until she arrived in court. After the trial and her acquittal, she apparently told Inspector Hagen everything, only to be dismissed out of hand. We don't want any of your lies, he had told her. Now, with no options left, she had told all in the published pamphlet, and what a pamphlet it was. Let the authorities ask the men in the workshop if they remember the bell being violently rung on the day I was at Hampstead with the children. The men remember the day, as they joked with me when I came back about donkey riding. Let the police ask if they remember the bell being rung second time and then one of their member being asked to go upstairs. And also let them be asked whether they heard pistol shots, screams for police and the smash of glass. Have the police tried to find the glazier who mended the window. If he can speak to the date, he will declare it was before Sunday, October the 14th. 
have they tried to find Mr. Ross, the lodger who took Miss Hacker's room the day after I went to Hampstead and was living in that room on October the 14th. The lodger discovered a pistol in the water closet on the day following his arrival at the house. If the police act on the suggestions thrown out and work on the facts of the case instead of their own theories, the murder of Miss Hacker will no longer be known as the Euston Square Mystery. The pamphlet was finished with a copy of Hannah Dobbs' handwriting, signed and dated, and confirming that the story was her own. If the Bastendorf house's reputation had suffered until now, it had been nothing. As a lodging house, it simply lay in ruins. In the wake of the pamphlet's publication, both Sverin and Mary Bastendorf put out public statements denying everything that Hannah Dobbs had either expressed clearly or alluded to. Inspector Hagen released a statement saying only that investigations into the truth or falsehood of the allegations were being looked into. Sverin Bastendorf struck out against George Perkis for publishing the pamphlet, igniting a charge of libel against him. Perkis was no fool, however. In retaliation, he filed an allegation of perjury against Sverin Bastendorf. Under oath, Sverin Bastendorf told the court during Hannah Dobbs' trial that he was not having an affair with the maid. It appeared as if at least some of the allegations were true, and further, that at least in the case of the affair, Perkis had evidence. Sverin Bastendorf found himself not only under fire from the allegations made in the leaflet, but he now found himself facing a court trial in which he was the defendant. The pre-trial against Sverin Bastendorf was swift, Hannah Dobbs had been well trained in the lead-up, and when questioned, she answered anything not related to the affair with an assertive decline to answer. Witnesses were called, in particular Hannah Dobbs's old colleagues at Torrington Square, who confirmed that Sverin was the man that they had known Hannah to be stepping out with. The case was deemed fit to be put to trial, the date of which was set just a few days later, in the dying days of November 1879. The trial was not a pretty one for Sverin Bastendorf. Hannah Dobbs took the stand as witness and wasted no time in delving into the gory details of the affair. This time she was rather more explicit, giving express details of places the pair had spent time together, as well as what they got up to during that time. She also dropped Severin in rather more trouble by stating that he had often needed to pawn items in order to pay for another young French girl that he had gotten pregnant and now was faced with keeping. The only moment that she slipped was when questioned on who Inspector Dogbury and Noodledum were, two fictitious police names used in the pamphlet by Perkis as a scathing attack on the police. Hannah Dobbs, however, was not so quick on picking up on the joke, and she merely stated that she didn't know them and had never met them. This might have seemed cruel to a degree, but it showed to the jury how little control and input she had personally on the details in the pamphlet. Then came a long line of further witnesses, key of which was the inn owner from Redhill that the pair were said to have stayed at together. Despite questions on the length of his beard, the inn owner remained adamant that the man she had seen with Hannah was Sverin. Further witnesses came and went, all friends of Sverin's who claimed to his good character, and then the closing speeches were spoken to the jury, whereby the defence called the Illustrated Police News Literary garbage of the police cell, brothel, jail and gallows. Scathing it might have been, but it fell on deaf ears. The 
The jury were out for two hours to deliberate before returning to give their verdict. Sven Bastendorf was found guilty of perjury for lying to court about his relationship with Hannah Dobbs. He was given his sentence a week later, 12 months imprisonment with hard labour. As he was escorted from the court, he may well have spared a moment to wonder how on earth he had found himself in such a position. He would now have 12 months to stew on the question, and stew he would. The papers reporting on the trial were quick to report their frustrations that no new information had come to light on the Euston Square mystery. There was, after all, still a murder waiting to be solved. Nor were the press entirely on the side of Hannah Dobbs, one calling her a thief, a strumpet and an accessory after the fact of murder. As for the Bastendorfs, the lodging house reputation was ruined. Secrets which were to be contained behind the walls and out of the sight of the public were now common knowledge in the national eye. The cabinet-making business that he had worked hard to keep afloat throughout the trial too was now looking at destruction. Worse, Mrs. Bastendorf was also found to be pregnant. The birth of Sverin's fifth child was due whilst he would be locked up behind bars in the Clerkenwell House of Detention. To add to this, the relationship between Mary and Sverin was now in tatters. One year later, Sverin was released, and one might think he would put the whole sordid affair behind him. This was not to be, however. He had spent a year angry in prison. He immediately filed for a libel case against Perkis. A trial was set, though it ended prematurely when Perkis settled with Sverin for the sum of £500, a fortune at the time. Sverin was now tasked with trying to save his cabinet business and reforge ties with his family. The cabinet business, amazingly, picked up for a while. His relationship with his wife, however, did not. Though he lived for a time in 4 Euston Square, all appearances seemed to point towards the couple's married life being at an end. Finally, Sverin broke down. He walked out of work one day and took a stroll to Camberwell, where the police picked him up due to his erratic behaviour. When he explained that he had been hearing voices telling him what to do, he was duly dispatched to the lunatic ward of the Camberwell workhouse. After a fortnight's stay there, he was discharged, though it would not last. Mrs. Bastendorf almost immediately applied to get him committed to Colney Hatch Asylum, a modern asylum specialising in mental health patients that would become infamous in time due to its hosting of several Ripper suspects. His stay in Colney Hatch lasted several months before he was discharged once again. Rather strangely, he once again tried to rebuild his life at 4 Euston Square, though it would not last, and by October of 1885 he was living in the nearby Midland Hotel. In May of 1887, he was charged with being a lunatic under proper control. He had apparently decided that it was a rather grand idea to walk into a local police station and declare, I have been sent by Almighty God to claim £50,000. My brother Peter and his wife murdered Miss Hacker. His medical notes from Colney Hatch read, He has the delusive idea that God speaks to him, that he speaks in English, French and German, that sometimes God's voice is audible close to him, sometimes it seems as if at a distance. Then when I ask him a question, he listens, hears the voice of God which dictates the answer, and then he answers. He will not wear the ward dress, being, as he says, directed by God not to do so. 
He said God's voice is distinct like music, that God came on a cloud and he saw him. Verdict, mania. Sverin thought that he could perform miracles and became increasingly paranoid, convinced that he was being monitored by the ward's telephones. He would only speak to the doctors when covering his mouth. In 1909, aged 62 years old, Sverin Bastendorf died of heart complications. The mystery of Four Euston Square remained completely unsolved. The police had, once or twice, attempted to revive the case, but to no avail. Outside of all the various court appearances, no new evidence came to light and no new information was gleaned. The information written in the pamphlet published by Hannah Dobbs and George Perkis was never confirmed to have been truth in full, in part, or entirely false. Whether or not Peter's wife, mentioned in the police station by Severin, was in fact Hannah Dobbs, is unlikely to ever be known, for she had disappeared off the map completely, though it doesn't seem terribly unlikely that she simply changed her name. Peter later moved to Paris, and it could be easily feasible that she now lived alongside him, married with an entirely different name and a fresh reputation. Euston Square itself, after enjoying a reasonable reputation, had suffered too. Eventually, the residents of the street petitioned to change the name to stop the dark tourism that continued unbated and the poor reputation the properties now had. The petition was granted and the street later changed its name to Ensley Gardens, the name it still holds today. The scandal may have titillated the public for a time, but in the end, the core questions still remained. Who killed Matilda Hacker and how? How had her body remained in the cellar for over a year without detection? Whilst it might be safe to say that much of the pamphlet detailing Hannah Dobbs' statement was undoubtedly sensationalist in nature, designed to profit from the back of a brewing scandal, exactly how much of it was true? If it was even just a small fraction, then the activities going on behind the walls of 4 Euston Square were very dark indeed. Well, god damn, that was a lot of gossip. I feel like a Victorian Daily Mail reader or something after that. But what a story, and what a pamphlet. We'll be back to discuss a little bit of that after these short adverts. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, 
You get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like a little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening and let's get back to the episode. So where do we even start with that one, right? I don't want to go on too long today because obviously this episode's already running quite long. But you know, there's so much there to address. I suppose probably the most interesting part is the pamphlet, obviously, and how much of that pamphlet is true. To a certain degree, I feel like I'm really sorried with Hannah Dobbs in this. Score one for the working class servant girl who was probably, you know, that was probably a, a class of people who were manipulated and used and were probably for the most part treated with a degree of disrespect by a bunch of middle class people who you know were just holding their class and wealth over their heads that's not always necessarily true because i i read that it that that it was almost like a two-way street because the servants sort of held a degree of power over the sort of masters as well because they knew everything that was going on in the house basically and they were the kind of secret keepers for the house as well I suppose so it kind of went both ways but I I don't know in this case in particular I kind of got the impression that Sverin Bastendorf was basically like a womanizer who used his position in society to treat women not so well so in a way I kind of loved it when Hannah Dobbs just kind of came out of prison and lamped him with that pamphlet so I don't really want to know if it's true or not I'm just gonna sort of think to myself that it was true and realistically though you know how much of it was true and how much of it was false I, I spend quite a lot of time in this podcast kind of demonizing poor sources and if anything is a poor source, it would be that leaflet. You know, it was obviously sensationalist. And it is unlikely that it can be trusted in any way, shape or form. But it does seem that some of it was obviously true. Like the allegations about him having an affair was obviously true. Because obviously he wouldn't have gone down for perjury. I mean, I mean, he may have, but it could have been a fault of the jury. But it seems pretty true, you know, it seems like he, he really did carry out that affair. So if that part of it's true, it does open up questions that how much more of it's true. A lot of it, it, it can't be. I don't think the the young boy part was true. I mean, if you look at it from a, a perspective of ticking boxes, you had Severin Bastendorf, who was sleeping with his mistress, who was his servant, in his children's bedrooms behind his wife's back when she was asleep and he was then beating children and killing them and then it it alluded to the fact that he shot and killed Miss Hacker 
And then to top it all off, as if it could get any worse, they killed a dog as well. So, and you know, sk- and they didn't just kill it, they skinned it alive and they ate it. Oh, the horror. Like, it's definitely like ticking all the boxes that kind of turn people against him. So, I think a lot of it was probably not true, but I do think that the affair was obviously true. And I, and I don't think it's a stretch to imagine that he gave her the watch. And if that's the case, that opens up a lot of questions. Especially when she says, did the police try to contact Mr. Ross? Well, who is this Mr. Ross? Uh, if he really did move into the room on the date that she says he moved in, which was the day after Miss Hacker left, then that blows holes in the police's case throughout. It doesn't take a lot of that pamphlet to be true for things to really turn on their head. Like I say, I don't think it was all true. I think you you really need to sort of trudge through it and try and pick out the bits that seemingly could be true. But even if, say, if it's just a small percentage, that's, that's a, that's a, raises a lot of questions. That, and the, and the difficulty you're gonna, that I assume the police had and, and everyone had with it was that everyone really had ulterior motives. The public probably had ulterior motives in their perception of swearing because they were kind of well into the salaciousness of the story and, and they, they were kind of, baying for blood and then Severian obviously would have had a motive because he wouldn't have wanted any of that to be common knowledge purely for a business reason more than anything else but outside of that you know he wouldn't have wanted that to be true because he would have been put in prison for probably ever then you have the police side of it and the police probably I'm not going to sort of put a tinfoil hat on and say that the police are corrupt or anything but they probably didn't want a lot of that to be true because a lot of it lampooned the police as well and I know for a fact that that was a time when the police were not necessarily holding up the best reputation. There was a lot of disquiet amongst the public about the way the police handled cases and the way they handled guilt and the way they just sort of acted generally. So there was a lot of disquiet against the police. So, you know, they, they probably were not so keen to kind of find out if it was true or false either. See, it raises an awful lot of questions. There's <laughs> a cracking sort of twist to the plot when she comes out with that pamphlet. I absolutely thought it was brilliant. I, yeah, I read it and I was just, what is this? <laughs> absolutely drop bombs. I should probably point out that if if you want if you found this story interesting, uh, I, I I read about it in a book called The Lady in the Cellar, which is recently released. It just came out last month, I think, and it's written by uh, Sinclair McKay. He's written lo- a bunch of books, sort of social history books about um, espionage and Bletchley Park, and he's sort of. I think he's done one crime book before. This is only one of his second crime book, I think. His second sort of delving into Victorian crime. But it's well worth the read. I, I found it fascinating. And obviously it has a lot more detail than what I can sort of 
put into a, a one hour long podcast I mean I tried to kind of be economical and, and even then I've ran over time so you know the book's got more detail and it's it's fascinating especially it goes a little bit more into the relationship between maids and landladies and, and things like that so it's, it's really interesting I definitely recommend it and think it's worth picking up whenever I use books as sources I always put it on the website so you'll be able to find it at darkissues.com if you go under the episodes I'll put a link to it there so yeah I suppose I say I don't want to go on too long but maybe discuss who who we think done the murder I, I, I'm pretty sure it was Bastendorf I think it was Severin Bastendorf I don't think it was Hannah Dobbs I don't think she was a killer as such necessarily Sinclair McKay in his book he sort of talks about how she was kind of a kleptomaniac and she's you know she kind of seemed to steal for the sake of stealing and he goes on to kind of theorize that there's she could possibly have also showed signs of sort of uh, sociopathy um in her indifference at the trial and things like that but at the same time I also sort of disagree with the way he talks about Severin as well in, in that he sort of suggests that because of Severin's later life where he ended up in Colney Hatch that perhaps he, he he had sort of mental health problems earlier in life as well that he just covered up a little bit better and obviously then he sort of puts two and two together as if like if he had those problems, perhaps he could have been a killer. But I mean, that seems like a stretch. Just just because he had mental health problems, it doesn't make you a killer. So I didn't necessarily agree with Sinclair McKay's conclusions, but I do think that it was probably Severin Bastendorf. I th- I think he sh- it sh- we could see enough evidence that he was probably in financial difficulty to some degree or or not difficulty because he seemed to live quite comfortably but perhaps he was not quite as well off as he aspired to be so yeah perhaps he had a lifestyle that he couldn't quite afford which is not an uncommon thing people you know people live to their means and if their means are not infinite you know if they if they have finite means they are often just as poor as someone with no money because they're they're living they're living to the very limit of what they can afford so it does seem that way and obviously the the allegation of the French girl if that's true as well how much was he having to pay for that you know if it's true that he was pawning all this stuff for those reasons he may have needed the money and if Hannah did tell him about Miss Hacker's money and he thought that was a good enough reason to bump her off and take it you know it's a it's a motive I don't know it's a tough one I don't think it was Hannah though I just don't think it was I think she was perhaps a kleptomaniac I think she was definitely keen on stealing things for no particular reason I don't think necessarily she she did sort of say that in earlier life she was very obsessed with reading like fashion magazines and things like that and you know she aspired to be a kind of well-off woman who could afford fashion and and all the rest of it I don't think that was really her motive for steel stuff I think she probably had an element of kleptomania there 
because she did seem to steal almost anything. Like that, for, and for for what reason? Like she stole a piece of silk. I mean, I can understand that silk was obviously a, a an expensive fabric and and a and probably a valuable thing to take. But it seems strange that she just took sort of random little bits and bobs as well and would just go and pawn them for for what reason because she didn't seem to buy anything with the money it wasn't as if she would pawn stuff and then go out and buy something with that money like a hat or a dress or something like that if she was doing that you might say that perhaps she was doing it for you know because she wanted to buy stuff and she wanted to be into she was all into fashion and everything but she didn't seem to do that she seemed to just steal stuff and pawn it and then steal some more stuff and pawn that so I do think there was probably an element of that to her but I don't think she necessarily was a killer and I don't think she killed Miss Hacker I think it was Sverin Bastendorf <laughs> so I'd be interested to know your thoughts uh, there's so much to talk about but I say I've overran quite a lot so I probably am just going to leave that and you know if you want to email me your thoughts, I, you know, I'd love to read them. Um, it, and if not, you, I'll be doing a live stream next week and we'll be discussing this case on the live stream. So, you know, pop in and check it out. I'll post up the time and date of that as it becomes a bit closer on the social media as usual. So as always, if you want to get in touch with me, darkhistories.com, you'll find all the social media links there. If you want to email me, contact at darkhistories.com. So I always love getting emails. If you want to write about this case, if you want to write anything really, uh, it's always interesting. Otherwise, thanks for listening. I'll see you in a couple of weeks for the last episode of season two, which is quite exciting. And then say it'll be like a three or four week break after that. Although I think I'm going to still be doing live streams in that time. But there'll be a sort of three or four week break and then we'll start season three. But in that break as well, say if you if I get enough emails for the bonus Christmas campfire episode with the creepy stories, like listeners' creepy stories, I'll, I will be releasing that. So it won't be completely silent. Anyway, I see you either next week at the live stream or in two weeks for the final episode. Exciting stuff. Thanks very much for listening. Take care. And I'll see you real soon. Sleep tight.